Everybody say, nobody. Nobody Nobody is too lost for Jesus. Nobody is too lost for Jesus. Let's pray and ask God's help for us this morning as we study his word. Father, we thank you for bringing us together in this room to hear this message of forgiveness. Whether we are new to the faith, whether we are not a Christian, doubting, wondering, or maybe we've been a Christian for many years, the message of forgiveness is always the message that we need to hear. We always need to be reminded that nobody is too lost for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Quote, I have an odd question. Are you afraid or embarrassed or hesitant to meet God when you die and give an account of your sins to him? I am. I am terrified. That's a text message that my brother received from a friend of his. And I wonder how you might respond to that message if you were the one that received it. When you think of standing before God, when you think of coming to God, I wonder if you are afraid, embarrassed to give an account, hesitant, or as he said, terrified to come before God. The question before us this morning is a simple question with an answer that is profound. The question is this, how can a great sinner come to God? How can a great sinner come to God? I think there are two types of people. There are some who stay away. There are others who fake it. Some stay away from God. Some hear of Christianity, religion, and they see it all as judgmentalism. God is only to them condemnation. And so they must stay away. Some of these folks, when you invite them to church, their response is, well, I need to get myself together first, and then I'll come. A great sinner as I cannot come to God, and so I'll stay away. The second kind of person would be the kind of person who just fakes it. They come. They're in church every week, but the reality is, is they ignore a lot of their sin in, in their life. For some of them, what the Bible clearly calls sin, they say is not sin. That's how they get by. Others might know that they have sin and guilt before God, and, and they just fake it and act like they are the perfect little family, coming with little Stevie and is, you know, he's ready to go. We're the, we're the, we're, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the model Christian. Do you believe that a sinner ought to come to church? 
Do you believe that there is anybody too great of a sinner to keep them from being able to come to God? These questions are answered in this text as we see a great sinner come to Jesus. The world doesn't understand the radical forgiveness of God in Christ. The good news of Jesus is not that you have to get yourself together first. The good news of Jesus is not that you get to be perfect in this world. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus has the ability to forgive. Look at verse 48 in the text. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Last week we saw the critical faith of the Pharisees. As Luke has been slowly walking through these ideas and contrasting pure faith from the Pharisaic, hypocritical faith so prevalent with the religious leaders of his day. The Pharisees were not just critical on each other, they were critical against God because they were critical about Jesus Christ himself. In their critical faith, these Pharisees cannot understand the pure joy of being in the forgiving presence of Jesus. Yet there's a woman who comes along and she gets it. She comes along and she understands something that the Pharisees don't get. In this text, we see the differences. The differences between a sinful woman and a self-righteous Pharisee. The sinner comes to Jesus and the Pharisee judges Jesus. The sinner is well aware of her sin and the Pharisee forgets basic hospitality. The sinner is forgiven by grace through faith while others sitting around the table question Jesus' authority to do so. Before I get in and start preaching this text, let me just give you my main point. My main point is this. Since the greatness of your sin highlights God's great forgiveness, let us as sinners come to Jesus. So let's look at the text. How does a sinner come to Jesus first? A sinner comes to Jesus in their sin. We come in our sin. Let me set the stage for you in this text. Jesus is invited to the Pharisee's house for dinner. Now in these days, dinners weren't in the private dining room of the house, but they were, would be in a public courtyard, an area open to the street. And so it's common when you had a dinner party for other passerbyers to just walk in, and not only common, but it was welcome for people to kind of come get near the dinner table and hear the conversation that's being had. Now, at this dinner, uh, a woman in verse 37 described as a woman of the city, and we all know what Luke is getting at there. She's not known for godliness. She's not known for uh, her propriety. She's not known for her great morals. She's referred to as a woman 
of the city. The, the second title Luke gives her is simply this, she's a sinner. She hears of Jesus and hears that he's at the Pharisee's house, and she comes to Jesus. Now, before we get into what happens, and we're going to get there, I want first to see the Pharisee's response to this. In verse 39, the Pharisee is thinking to himself, what's going on? The Pharisee is thinking to himself, Jesus must not be a prophet. Here's the Pharisee's simple logic. Holy men do not let sinners touch them. Secondly, prophets know who people really are. Thirdly, Jesus is letting this woman touch him. Thus, Jesus must not be, what? A prophet. That's the Pharisee's logic. He doesn't even voice it. He, he, he thinks it, and Jesus reads his mind. And Jesus responds. He says, I've got something to say to you, Simon. Simon. And he responds. We're going to get into his response. But before we do that, I want to skip down to verse 39. Or verse, verse 40. Uh, Oh, I'm lost on my text. Hang on one second. Let me find it. Thank you. That's what I need right now. Here we go. <laughs> Verse 47. There we go. Therefore, he says, I tell you her sins, which are many. Does Jesus know that she is a sinner? Does he know that she has many sins? Absolutely, he does. Jesus does not look over her sins. Jesus doesn't allow her to come into his presence because he's one who's known to just simply gloss over sin. Jesus does not allow someone to come into uh, his presence simply because he's not aware of how bad you actually are. The point I'm trying to make here is this. Jesus knows this woman. He knows that she is a woman of the city. He knows that she is a great sinner. And I believe this, the woman knows who Jesus is. Word has spread already in Luke. We've seen that. Jesus has already forgiven sins. And everybody has already been amazed that this man forgives sins. I am convinced that this woman heard that Jesus is the one who comes, who's able to forgive sins. If Jesus can forgive sins, that means he is what? Well, only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus claims to forgive sins, he's at the very least claiming to be God. And if he can actually do it, if he can actually grant forgiveness of sins, this is saying something about Jesus' divinity. Well, this woman comes to Jesus as a sinner. And that's the first point that I want to make this morning. We come to Jesus in our sin. We don't get ourselves together first and then come. We come in our sin. I heard a story of a man who got drunk one night, comes home, looks in the mirror, and he sees cuts and bruises all over his face from his drunken brawl. So he proceeds to take band-aids and put band-aids on his cuts and bruises to cover them up so his wife doesn't know. He lays in bed with a smile on his face, he got, got by. 
She's not going to find out. Well, that morning, his wife wakes him up and says, Honey, you got drunk again last night. He looks at her. How does she know? And she says, There are Band-Aids all over the bathroom mirror. I'm glad you got that. I wasn't sure if you'd get that. <laughs> Look, we are about that successful when we try to cover up our sins before Jesus. We cannot hide our sins. The first step in understanding what it means to come to Christ is to know that He already knows. We're not going to tell Him anything about yourself that He doesn't already know. And so when we try to hide who we actually are from Jesus or by, from his representative people, when we try to hide who we actually are, we're foolish. We're foolish. We're not successful at it. We come to Jesus not trying to look better than we actually are. We come in our sin. Do you believe that sinners can come to Jesus as they are. Do you believe that there is someone who is too great of a sinner to come to Jesus? If Jesus' church can save the least sinner, Jesus can serve, save the greatest of sinners. How many times have you sinned on a Sunday morning, maybe against another person or your spouse or your child and you think to yourself well I guess I can't go to church now you thought that you have to have it all together in order to come into the presence of Jesus how many times has, has maybe a parent lost it with their children and, and think to themselves well I, I can't go stand by them and sing in church or go to Bible study that would be hypocritical do we believe that we ought to be perfect in order to come to Jesus and receive the kindness of His grace and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. No, we come to Jesus as sinners, as people who are broken. Nobody, nobody is too lost for Jesus. In this room, right now, are people who were once up to their eyeballs in sexual immorality, idolatry, participation in same-sex relationships, thieves, greedy, drunks, slanderers, people who take advantage of others. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but I just quoted 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, such were some of you. I think every church is made up of a combination of all sorts of these stories. People who were once dead in their trespasses and in their sins. People who, 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 who were so lost, they felt absolutely helpless. Oh, I wonder if we shared our testimonies with each other, if we would be encouraged to see God's grace all around this room. I wonder if sometimes we try to hide the fact that we were bad. When in all reality, we don't want to brag about it. Be careful. But when we talk, when we give a testimony of where we once were and where God has now brought us, 
Don't you understand that that just shows and highlights and demonstrates the goodness of God for how great a sinner it takes that much more grace. And there is no sin in this church that God cannot forgive. I wonder if we shared our testimonies with each other, if someone in that very sin could be encouraged to fall on their knees before Christ and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. I'm telling you, nobody is too lost for Jesus. Secondly, we come to Jesus in repentance. We come in our sin, and secondly, we come to Jesus in repentance. If you hurt my child, accidentally or intentionally, it doesn't matter. If you hurt my child, And I came to you, and, and your response was, what's the matter? Oh, you, you hurt my child. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yo, uh, my bad. I'm going to question whether or not you're sorry. <laughs> I'm going to question... Like you can't show me any emotion. You can't shed one tear for hurting my child. My bad. Oh, how sad is it that sometimes we don't even say my bad. There are people around in your life who don't know how to show any remorse. Listen, if we cannot show remorse to each other, how can we show remorse to God? Do you understand that while some people, some Christians, they're, they're concerned about emotions. They're, you know, don't be too emotional. Do you understand that emotions are intimately connected with saying, I'm sorry? Try telling me you're sorry for hurting my children without any tears. The woman comes in repentance, and what her repentance looks like is brokenness and uncontrolled emotions. This sinful woman, she comes to Jesus broken. She comes ready with this anointing oil. Now, women of her day would wear a, a vial of perfume around their neck, and this vial would be somewhat pear-shaped with a long neck itself. And, and when you're ready to use this perfume, you would break the neck and pour it out. Now, the ancient Jewish historians said that those vials made out of alabaster were of the best quality. Which means this is perfume that she may have been carrying around for quite a while. This is some very expensive stuff. She comes to Jesus ready to anoint him with this oil. Now in verse 36, it's, we see that Jesus is reclining at the table. Luke wants to point out his posture for a reason. 
In the ancient world, when you eat, you didn't sit at chairs like we do today, but rather you would lay on the ground, your weight supported by your left arm, and you would eat with your right hand. Now, if, if a visitor is coming in from the street, looking at this table where people are eating, she's positioned at what point of Jesus, what part of Jesus' body? She's positioned at his feet. Now, as she comes in, is it her initial intention to use the anointing oil on his head? Probably, because that's where you would typically place anointing oil. Is it possible, that, or was it likely that she was coming in with the intention of washing his feet? The answer is not likely. It wouldn't have been her place. That was the job of the host. That was the job typically of the servant of the host. What we see happening as she comes in is this sinner is standing in the presence of Jesus and she, as we say today, she loses it. Uncontrolled emotion. The sinner before Jesus is well aware of her sin and well aware of who Jesus is. The tears well up in her eyes in verse 38. A lump in her throat forms as she begins to weep. As she, the text says in verse 38, wets his feet with her tears and begins in this frantic moment to dry his feet with her hair. I stand amazed in the presence, the old hymn says, of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous! How wonderful! Oh, this my song will ever be. How marvelous! How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. She's filled with uncontrolled emotion. Gospel understanding begins when we say, I'm sorry for my sin. You know the mess that you've made in your life. And as you stand in the presence of the one who can forgive you of your mess, you're filled with emotion. Sometimes in our personal worship, we don't follow the plan that we set out with because we are so filled with emotion by God's Word. As we read his text, as tears fall from our eyes onto the pages of Scripture, there's times where, honestly, I'm preaching, and I don't plan for this, but I veer from what I had planned because of just a moment of emotion. Or sometimes in our own worship, as we're singing songs, we're not planning to shout or to say hallelujah, but we're filled with emotion before Jesus in his presence. When a sinner comes to Christ and a sinner knows who Jesus is, a sinner responds. Now that response, of course, can be manipulated. Let's, let's not fool ourselves. But when that response comes from a broken and contrite heart, that response displays repentance of the heart. Jesus, I'm sorry for making a mess of my life. 
I'm sorry for my sin. And we stand amazed in His presence. Thirdly, we come to Jesus in worship. How do sinners come to Jesus? Let me recap where we're at. Sinners come to Jesus in their sin. Sinners, secondly, come to Jesus in repentance. And sinners, thirdly, come to Jesus in worship. The Pharisee here in this text forgets basic hospitality. The Pharisee doesn't wash the feet of Jesus as he should. The Pharisee doesn't anoint the head of Jesus as he should. This woman comes and in her uncontrolled emotion before Jesus, she serves Jesus in the very way that the host should have. We see something there between the two of them, don't we? A contrast. Now, her service immediately shifts to worship. We see that as she dries the feet of Jesus, she begins to kiss his feet. The oil that may have been meant for his head is now being poured out on his feet, and she's anointing his feet with this perfume coming from this alabaster jar. This is not mere respect. This, what we see, is an act of worship. As we kiss the feet of Jesus, we kiss the feet of God. Kissing the feet of Jesus is an act of worship. To anoint the head with oil is to show honor. But to anoint the feet with oil is to show utter humility of the one who is standing in his presence. Now, in this moment, the Pharisee doubts as to whether or not Jesus is even a prophet. Jesus looks at the Pharisee, his name is Simon, and he says, Simon, I, I, I have something to tell you. And in a very pointed yet kind way, Jesus tells a parable to explain what's going on with this sinful woman. He says, let me, t let me tell you about these two guys. Both of these men were debtors. One owed the moneylender 500 denarii which in today's dollars would be $35,000. Don't show your hands, but how many of you owe $35,000 because of some college classes you took? <laughs> Another man owes 50 denarii. That comes to about $4,000 in today's currency. In verses 41 and 42, as he tells this parable, he explains that the moneylender forgives both of these debtors. $35,000 forgiven. $4,000 forgiven. And then he asks the question, which of these two debtors do you think loves the moneylender 
more? It's a simple, simple question with a simple answer. Of course, the one who owed more would love more. The one who owed $35,000 would be so happy in the presence of this one who was able to forgive his debt. Listen, here is the pattern that we have. Number one, we come to Jesus. Number two, we repent of our sins. I wonder what you would say the third step is. Many people would say the third step is we change our actions. We get things together. We take a self-help course. We learn to improve our behavior. What I believe the third step is, and I see this here in this narrative, is that we simply worship. We worship. We worship. We worship. We don't simply get to work. We, we worship the one who is able to forgive our sins. Listen, the former gods that you used to worship do not satisfy, do they? There is no God out there, no idol out there that you once worshipped that actually satisfies. The idols of the community do not save. Worshipping celebrities simply leave you realizing how little you have. Worshipping sex leaves you unfulfilled. Worshipping money leaves you with constant anxiety. This invitation that we have as Christians to turn from our sin and now to worship Christ is an invitation, listen, to be freed from worshiping all of the things that do not satisfy. Even our command to worship is redemptive. We're freed from these things. And we can now worship one who truly satisfies. Oh, I believe that, the, that there was change coming to this woman's life. I don't believe she went back to the streets. But I want you to see how her change would have come about. Her change does not come from the Pharisees' condemnation. Her change does not come through a list of rules being given to her. Her change does not come through showing up in church and being preached at and being reminded of all the things that she has done wrong. How does her change come? The woman's change and our change is not a result of condemnation, but it's a result of grace. Our change comes as we change our worship. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we are busy kissing the feet of Jesus, we cannot be busy kissing the feet of any other idol in our life. When we are busy worshiping God in Christ, we don't have time to worship money, power, sex, drugs, you name it, like you used to. We change through changing that which we worship.
It comes by grace. Here's what I mean by that. As we hear and understand the grace of God in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are drawn to kiss the feet of Jesus, to anoint his feet with oil, a.k.a. we are drawn to worship and love Christ. And when we worship and love Christ, we have new allegiances. And we don't live according to the old allegiances we once clung to. We come as sinners. We come in repentance. We come in worship. And fourthly and lastly, we come to Jesus in faith. A sinner comes to Jesus in faith. If you go to the doctor, you are giving your medical condition to the doctor and trusting him with it. If you go to a lawyer, you're giving your case to a lawyer and trusting him to plead for you in a way that you can't. If you go to a banker, you're giving your banker your money and trusting he will invest it and not lose it. If you come to Jesus, you are giving Jesus your incredibly impossible case. You're giving Jesus your brokenness. You're giving Jesus your sin. You're giving Jesus your broke soul. And you're trusting Jesus to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. Look at the text, verse 47. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. Let's pause right there for a second. Does Jesus say the Pharisee has less to forgive? Does Jesus say, oh, this woman loves me more because she actually had more sins than you? And so her forgiveness of all, all of those great sins caused her to love me more, but you just haven't sinned that much, and so that's why you don't love me as much. Well, that's not what he says at all. He doesn't even allude to the fact that the Pharisee is not a great sinner. What he says is the person who is forgiven much loves much. What he's saying is, is that the Pharisee has not really been forgiven. The reason, Simon, you don't understand what's going on, the reason you don't understand our worship, the reason you don't understand these tears, the reason you don't understand these shouts is because you have not been forgiven of your sins, Simon. Because if you were forgiven of your sins... If you understood the depth of your depravity, if you understood the debt that you had against God, you too, Simon, would be falling on your knees, worshiping me, kissing my feet, anointing them with oil. Listen, there is nobody beyond Jesus' ability to save, not the woman nor the Pharisee. God in Christ can save the greatest of sinners. And that's what he says to the woman in verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. I want you to look at verse 49. 
as we continue through this text, the response of the others sitting around the table. Let me read it to you. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, isn't it interesting that they are amazed by Jesus? Isn't it interesting that they might even be enamored by Jesus? Isn't it interesting that they picked up on this forgiveness of sins and they wonder about his own identity as a result of his ability to forgive sins? What I find it sad is that they do not ask Jesus for the forgiveness of their own sins. Because remember our first point, a sinner comes to Jesus in their sin. Family, if you don't come in your sin, you don't realize you need a Savior. How is it possible that Jesus can forgive sins? Listen, I don't understand exactly why God has done everything the way He has. I just know what He's revealed to us in His Word. And what He's shown us in His Word is that your sins condemn you before God, but Jesus is a great Savior. In His Word, we see that our sins condemn us to death. However, in the Old Testament, we saw, and Montrell, by the way, is going through this in his new biblical theology class. Make sure you guys come to that 9.30 every Sunday morning. What we see in the Old Testament is that God will accept a sacrifice for atonement for sin. Jesus then comes in the New Testament, not just as a great moral teacher, not just simply as one who's a performer of miracles, not just simply as one who declares you're forgiven, but He comes with the ability to forgive. And what I mean by that is He's providing a sacrifice for us that no lamb or goat could ever do. He's providing a sacrifice for you that no pastor could ever do. He's providing a sacrifice for you that your parent could not do for you. Jesus comes to provide the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And that is death on the cross. As He hangs on the cross, He dies for the woman of the city who was hopeless. As He hangs on the cross, He dies for the Pharisee who turns from his self-righteousness and trusts in Him. As He dies on the cross, He dies for people like you and me takes our punishment in His own body on the tree, rises again three days later from the grave. And He calls us to turn from our sin, to repent, and to come to Him in faith. Look at the last verse, verse 50. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She came in brokenness. She came with all of this mess in her soul. She came with this twisted feeling in her gut. And Jesus says, you can now go in peace. Why? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works.
in the ancient world as a debtor would forgive someone of their debt. I'm sorry, a, a giver, a lender, would forgive someone a debtor of their debt. That forgiven debtor was now, in some ways, indebted in service to the lender. When, for example, Gomer is on the auction block and Hosea buys her and pays off her debt, Gomer is owned by who? Hosea. When Jesus comes and with His precious blood pays off the debt of sin that we could not pay, who are we now owned by? Somebody? We're owned by Jesus Christ. Do you guys understand that there is no such thing as the free individual? Do you guys realize there is no such thing as the autonomous human being? Listen, you are either a servant to sin or you are a servant to God. Those who are forgiven of their sins are what? A servant no longer to sin, but a servant to God. When we are a slave to God, we are freed from sin. Freedom from sin means service to God. It means, church, that you, if you are repentant, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are owned by God. Now, even this is grace. Let me explain it to you in this way. I heard another story of a, a, a young girl who was having trouble obeying her parents. She would say no. She would lose her temper. She would kick. She would scream. Her dad said to her, baby, we're going to be going to Disney World soon as a family. Can you please act like you're part of this family? And the little girl says, yes, I will. And there's a part of the girl that really does want to do well. But she just can't control herself. And she loses it time and time again. Continues to hit and scream and say no. The morning comes and the family is getting ready to go to Disney World. And the little girl breaks down in tears. The father asks her, why are you crying? And she says, because I've been bad. And I can't go to Disney World. And the father says to her, baby, you're not going to Disney World because you're good. You're going to Disney World because you're mine. You're going because you're part of the family. Listen, God says to us, your entry into the kingdom of heaven isn't because you were good. It's because you're mine. Does anybody understand the grace of God here? Does anybody understand the grace of being owned by a father who says, you are mine and I am yours. 
And I'm going to do everything that it takes to get you home. That is grace. What permits this sinful woman into the presence of Jesus and His kingdom is the blood of Jesus Christ. What permits us into the presence of Jesus and His kingdom is our adoption as sons and daughters of this Most High God. What permits us into the presence of Jesus is our union with God in Christ. You're going to heaven, saints, not because you did so good, but because you are His. Oh, I wonder if if someone thought you were too lost to be saved. Family, He knows your sin. He sees your repentance. He sees your faith. Oh, He's given that to you as His gift. Go in peace. Go in peace. We can go in peace because there is nobody who is too lost for Jesus. We can go in peace because Jesus has said your sins are forgiven. Worship Him. Find new allegiances in Him. Oh, don't go back to these idols that did not satisfy. Simply to Him, cling. Break that jar of alabaster. Wash His feet with your tears. Kiss them. Anoint them with oil. And find in Christ the sweetest Savior you've ever known. Amen? Father, we thank You that we are people who are bought by Your blood. We thank You for the gift of faith that we've received. God, thank You for this woman and the way that You chose to save her and, and, and get, gave this story to us as an inspired example of what it looks like for a great sinner to come to Jesus. May we know that the greatness of our sin magnifies and highlights the greatness of Jesus' forgiveness. We cling to Christ this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.